As we continue our look at Matthew, at the life of Christ and Matthew's parables, uh, we're going to be in Matthew 13, starting in verse 44. As I was looking at this passage, I was <clears throat> thinking about some of my most probably enjoyable times as a kid. Um, I have an uncle, his name is Uncle Mike, and I, I, I pray that everybody has an Uncle Mike in their life. Now, he's not a crazy uncle. Um, no, instead, he's just the father figure that I needed when my father was ill and not able to be the father that I wanted. So much so that my Uncle Mike was actually one of my two best men at my wedding. Uh, but what I remember most about my Uncle Mike was his, our little shopping excursions we went on. Um, shopping it sounds a little more focused than what we were doing, but we would go to garage sales and swap meets and estate sales. See, my uncle used to be uh, a guy who worked for a company that would buy up estate sales and then turn around and sell them, and he could spot things that were of great value um, on a first glance. I remember one time we were at a garage sale, and he walked through, and uh, we were kind of talking afterwards, you know, after walking through, and I was like, well, what, what did you see? And he goes, oh, over there on that table over there, that little, little blue thing right there? I said, yeah. And he goes, that's probably worth about $700. And I was like, really? And he goes, no, 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 don't look at it. <laughs> and I was like, okay, what are we going to do? He said, well, we're going to buy a couple of things, and then we're going to buy that as well. Really? Okay. So, you know, I'm thinking, where's the thing? You know, is this worth 100 Is this worth 100 You know, and as a kid, you know, I, I thought for sure I could figure all that out. My uncle, um, though, is the expert at that. Uh, one thing I remember him buying was he bought up a bunch of postcards. And uh, they turned out they were not your usual postcards that you go to the store and you buy, and there's like hundreds of them. These were actual pictures, because postcards used to be just, you had a picture, and then you slapped an address on it and you mailed it to someone. It wasn't a printed at a place. It was a, hey, I'm sending you a picture. And so he found a bunch of those and the stamps on those were worth quite a bit of money. But my uncle, no matter how great he is, he can't touch Roy Wettstein. Roy Wettstein went to what was called a rock show. Okay? Now it's not a rock show like Luke Fullington up here playing the guitar. Okay? No, it's a rock show as in they would go and look at rocks. Now, some of us go, that doesn't sound super exciting, but for Roy, it was. He was looking at this box, and the box said $15 each, and it was this big box full of agates, and he pulled out this one that looked like a potato, and he was looking at it, and the, the guy who owned the booth goes, oh, that's so ugly. You know what? I'll give that to you for 10 bucks, and Roy's like, really? 10 bucks? He goes, yeah, 10 bucks. All right, deal. So he paid the money. And then he walked outside, and as soon as he got outside of the rock show, he started shaking because he realized what he had just purchased was a 1,500-carat blue sapphire star, a star sapphire, which is about $2.5 million. And if you cut it and you actually clean it all up, it's about $10 million. And that was 20 years ago, so you can imagine what it would be now. I mean, it's about the size, you know, it's about the size of a, what I would say is a good-sized hamburger, right? Um, and he found that for 10 bucks. And what an incredible thing. Now, I don't know that my uncle has ever found something that amazing. He's found his little, little bits here and there. But I think about that guy, Roy. What, what if the guy said, no, you know what? You need to give me $500 for that. You need to give me $10,000 for that. Would Roy have paid it? Yeah. $10,000 is worth it if you can sell it for $2.5 So I, I love this passage today because it's all about treasures. 
And one of the interesting things that happens is every week we sit down as pastors that are going to be preaching, and we have a Zoom call where we sit and we discuss the passage. And so we were talking about this, and we went back and forth, and right at the end, one of the pastors goes, hey guys, I have a question. And we're like, okay, cool, what's the question? He goes, how are you bringing this to Christmas? And we all kind of went, uh, ooh, is that coming up? Um, and we went, oh, we really don't know. And that's when the Lord showed up because the Lord gave us a picture, just this, it was like, boom, it was amazing. It was like, how could we not see how this ties to Christmas? And as a matter of fact, today's parables, all three of them tell the Christmas story. And so I'm excited to share that with you because we sit back and we go, oh, you know, I don't know. And then the Lord goes, let me show you. Boom. And it's the perfect fit. And I love when the Lord shows some of that divine logic. So look forward to that as we go through this and you'll be able to see them. So if we had a big idea for today, the big idea would be the kingdom of heaven is of incalculable value. It's so valuable that a person should be willing to give up everything to obtain it to give up all things to obtain it. So this is where we're at. We're starting right at the beginning. What is of most value to you? And then this should be even more valuable. So let's go into the context, because we don't want to read a Bible verse without knowing the context. So at this point, remember Jesus has left the crowds. He's no longer talking to them, at least at this point in Matthew. And he's inside a room with his 12 disciples and probably a few others. And he tells them this parable. Now remember, a parable means to lay something next to something, to bring out the similar traits, to bring out the same qualities, right? And Jesus has said, if you're willing to hear, these parables will be clear. If you're not, they're going to be confusing. So Jesus is weaving this tapestry, this mighty picture of all of it coming together. And so I want to, I want to start with showing you guys how these parables build on each other. So the first parable of the, of the ones that tie together is the parable of the weeds and the wheat, this was the one we looked at a couple weeks ago, verses 24 through 30. And this was, this is what the world looks like. And Jesus is saying, this is the big overarching picture. You have some that are wheat, and you have some that are weeds, and they're going to be all intertwined until the very end when the angels come in and separate them out, which will sound very familiar because that's what verse 50 is talking about today. Then the last week, we saw the mustard and the leaven. And this was the discussion of how is this kingdom going to spread? How does it move around? And then this week, we are into the treasure and the pearl. What's interesting is that both the treasure in verse 44 and the pearl in verse 45, other than the word again in verse 45, it's the same exact introductory words. All six words there are the same words. Jesus is saying, this is what it's like. So far, Jesus has been saying, here's what the kingdom's like. It's this big thing. Here's how the kingdom's going to move. What he hasn't answered the question of is, how do we become part of the kingdom? You know, is it like the Jews at this time where you're just born a Jew and therefore you're a part of the covenant people? Is it mom and dad went to church so I kind of squeak in? Is there some other means? And so Jesus is answering the question, how does one enter the kingdom? And then the final parable, which is the one we'll look at last, is the net. And this is the one that Jesus says, remember the stakes, remember the situation that we're in. The net is being closed, okay? The, the end is coming. What are we going to do about that? And so Jesus is answering the question, what about those who don't treasure the kingdom? 
So that's kind of the big overarching picture. Let's get into it now. Verse 44 is going to talk about someone who stumbles into the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Covered up means he reburied it. Okay? So he dug it up. He was working the field, probably a hired hand, something like that. He was working the field. Oh, he runs into something, opens it up. Guess what? It's a treasure. So he covers it back up. Now, this wouldn't seem weird to people in Israel at this time. See, there are no banks. There's no safety deposit boxes. There's nowhere to keep your goods safe. So if you wanted to keep it safe, you dug a hole and you hid it in the hole. Because even putting them in caves, that's the first place people will look. And with Israel having been conquered multiple times, and with really the opportunity, if you're not living right next to somebody who's going to protect you, you marauders come through and robbers and thieves, you're going to hide it to keep it safe. And we should be pretty familiar with this because there's a famous parable, the parable of the talents. If you remember the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, they give the talents out and one of the guys goes, oh man, I'm not going to lose this talent. I'm going to hide it. So when he comes back, he gets his talent back. And of course, the point of the passage is that you're supposed to use those talents, not hide them. So my question in this was, well, isn't this guy like doing something illegal? And this seems kind of backhanded, kind of unethical. So I found out that the law says, if you dig something up and find it, it's yours. Even if it belong, even the field belongs to somebody else, it's yours, which I thought was kind of an interesting law, right? However, the man didn't follow this law. Instead, he had enough respect for the person who he was working for, or the field who it belonged to, to go to them and say, I'd like to buy your field. Now, the fact that the person who's selling the field was so quick to sell means what? The treasure didn't belong to him. So even in that, it wasn't like he was stealing it. So the man bought the field, made sure it didn't belong to the person who owned the field, and then took the treasure for himself. And I love how it says, then in his joy, the New Living Translation says, in his excitement. Literally, this in the Greek is out of his joy, emphasizing that the joy was welling up in him. And so he goes, oh, of course I'm going to sell everything. Of course I want this. See, we, if, if you start looking for it, joy is one of those words that pops up all the time in the Bible. As a matter of fact, it's the engine that drives, or it should drive, all of our sacrifice. Here's a few examples. John 15, 11. Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full or complete. 1 John 1, 4. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. John 6, 24. Ask and you will receive, and that your joy may be full. Paul gets in on it as well. Romans, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. So he is filled up with, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I just found this. This is amazing. And in response to it, it says he sold all that he has. Now this is not hyperbole, all right? This is not just a, oh, he sold everything, and meaning he sold all of this stuff, but not all of that stuff. In the Greek, the words are, he sold absolutely all that he owned. So this is everything. He took everything that he owned, his home, his furniture, his livestock, 
his things that people had gifted him, everything that he owned. You're going, oh, well, you know, this is Israel, you know, in the first century. They didn't have much, right? Well, not having much means you put those possessions are way worth more to you than they would if you had a lot, right? If you've got hundreds of something, it's like, oh, yeah, I'll part with 50 of them. They're going, I've got three things, and I'm getting rid of all of them. So he got rid of all of them, saying goodbye in an instant. But what's interesting is that the the emphasis in this passage is not on what he gives up, but what he acquires. It says it's a treasure. He gave up his stuff to gain a treasure. So this parable is describing how someone can be converted by discovering a treasure. Not expecting it, but surprisingly stumbling upon it. And you are converted when Christ becomes your treasure. Matthew 6.21 says that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Your heart always reveals what is your treasure. One author writes, We are born again and converted when Christ becomes a treasure in whom we find so much delight that trusting, obeying, and turning from all things that belittle him become normal. See, Jesus is not giving business advice. It's not the transaction that's important. It's the treasure that is important. Now, if you were to look at this guy from outside, you'd be like, what an idiot, right? You'd be going, this guy's a fool. He just sold everything he had to buy this empty field, right? I kind of imagine it like he was plowing the field and it's like half plowed and then he ran into the treasure and he stopped and went, oh, I got to go buy this field. So he goes and sells everything to buy the field. People are going, you didn't even finish plowing it. It's not even ready to go. What a moron. And then he digs up the treasure and you go, ha, oh, the moron's right here because there's a treasure there. And he was willing to give up everything for it. Matthew 10 said something like this. We saw this a few months ago. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If we don't love and treasure Jesus like this, then we don't see him rightly because this is the only correct response to Jesus. It's the only correct response to Jesus. Jesus is saying, having me is like having this treasure. It's better than the best that this world can offer. Better than massive homes. Better than beautiful cars. Better than clothing, hobbies, Apple products, books, businesses, animals, television, etc., etc., Nothing is more valuable than Christ. And so this is the first parable we see. So how does this tie into Advent, to Christmas? Well, what were the shepherds doing when the kingdom came upon them? They were just like this man. They were just going about their business. They were hanging out with smelly sheep in the middle of the night, and then whammo, the angels appear. Shepherds aren't going, so is it king over there or over here? They're going, okay, yeah, I got dumb sheep. I have to make sure they're safe. And then, wham, the kingdom hits them. And then what does it say? It says they hurried to go see, right? There's there's excitement here. There's joy here. Now, it's interesting because it says they hurried, okay? So that tells us one of two things. One, they either left the sheep by themselves at the most dangerous time of the day for them in the middle of the night, or they had someone else watch them. But it definitely tells us they didn't bring the sheep because hurrying and sheep don't go together. So they ran down to see this baby and they got there and they went, oh my gosh. They gave up a job because honestly, shepherds leaving their sheep 
That's how you get fired. And these sheep probably were sheep that were going to go to the temple. So not only were these sheep uh, something that would get you fired, but you're breaking potential laws and you could go to jail. You might even be executed if they're bad enough. So these guys don't care. They go, this is way more valuable. This is way more valuable than anything we have. They epitomize someone who's not looking, but God found them. Some of you in this room, that's how God saved you, right? You weren't like looking. As a matter of fact, some of you were running the opposite direction. And the Lord went down and grabbed you by the scruff of the neck and said, I'm over here and brought you to him. But the difference, the thing you, you see, the thing that's the consistency is that you are surprised by it and then you're amazed by it and the treasure changes your life. So that's the first parable. The second parable is all about the one who was looking for the kingdom. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold that all that he had and bought it. The uh, Christian Standard Bible says, a priceless pearl. So it's very similar to the first parable. The difference, though, is, is that this guy is looking. He's, he's going out and trying to find this pearl. Now, pearls are interesting. They're the only precious stone that is made by a living organism. They're made in oysters. And I mean, no, no, you, you know you know this, but a little grain of sand or another irritant gets inside the oyster. And it actually hurts the oyster. The oyster starts to get pain from that irritant. So it begins covering it with a thing called nacre, or better known as mother of pearl. And it begins covering it, and it softens out the edges, and it makes it into this beautiful pearl. Now, pearls were hard to come by. They were, they were found in the Red Sea or the Persian Gulf or the Indian Ocean. And people back in this time, they didn't have all the things that we have to make pearl diving easier. Literally what they would do was they would take their boat out into the middle of the ocean or the sea and they would tie rocks to your feet and they would have you go over the side and you would sink down to the very bottom. Does that sound like a lot of fun? Does that sound like a fun activity? See, the problem is, is that there's a couple things here. If you're in the wrong spot, now if you've ever been out in the ocean where you can't see anything, right, it all looks the same. So if you're a little too far over and you tie those rocks onto somebody, you could be going down far enough that you die. So you gotta be in the right spot. Not only you gotta be in the right spot, but when you get down there, you have to be able to feel around in pitch black darkness, freezing, holding your breath, looking for oysters that may or may not have pearls in them, and then after you find them, you have to carry them, untie yourself from the rocks, swim back to the top. That is an arduous task by any estimation. So why did they do this? Well, pearls were worth incredible amounts of money. Cleopatra was said to have two pearls, both of which were worth a half a million dollars and today would be worth 20 to 200 times more than that. Roman emperors, to show how rich they were, they would take pearls and they would dissolve them in vinegar and then drink it in their wine like it was no big deal. Pearls are of great value. As a matter of fact, when the description of heaven is done by John in Revelation 21, 21, he starts with pearls. The 12 gates were like 12 pearls. Each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the city of the street was pure gold like transparent glass. This is one of the key describers of what heaven would look like, this new heaven and new earth. Jesus brought this out earlier. We saw this in Matthew 7 when he says, Do not give to dogs what is holy. 
Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them under a foot and then attack you. Saying, don't give up what's extreme value with this extreme worst animal. Don't put those two together. So let's look at this guy. He's an expert in pearls, a merchant. He's going around. He's going to all the rock shows looking for pearls. And then he finds this one. And this one is of such value that he gives up all the pearls he has. He gives up all the stuff that he has and says, I want that one. The kingdom of heaven is more valuable than everything we own. He gives up every single pearl to have the one. What a sacrifice. This, is, this, this sacrifice and understanding how valuable it is is the only way to make sense of passages like Philippians 3. Philippians 3, 7 says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we can't make sense of that if we don't see it as a treasure. Oh, Paul's just a little too fundamentalist extreme. He's just a little, you know, he's just that guy. No, Paul's saying, I treasure what I got so much by Christ that by comparison, everything in my life is trash, garbage by comparison. What he's saying is the thing that everybody in this world holds up as the most important things, which is self, he says, God is so much greater. Finding Christ is so much greater that by comparison, it becomes as garbage. Now, in Advent, we see this with the wise men, the Magi. They did not plan a spur-of-the-moment trip to Israel. It was a 700-mile trip. It would take three to four weeks to walk it. When they saw the star in the sky, they began making plans. They would have had to have gathered stuff together, probably a full entourage. No, it wasn't just three, okay? Even though it looks really good with our you know, nativity scenes. They began their trip. They got their, 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 their gifts for the new king. They put these treasures. They, they risked their lives. This was not a safe journey. This was not an easy journey. And then they went to all the places where the king would, would you would expect him to be, and everyone said, no, he's not here. He's somewhere else. And they kept going until they found him. And then what does it say? They worshiped him. Worship and joy go hand in hand. They bowed down and said, ah, oh, yes. Here it is. Now you may be like, okay, yeah, three weeks, not that long, right? But I want to ask you, when was the last time you worked out for 14 hours for one day? And then when was the last time you did that for 21 days straight? They would have walked this or maybe even ridden on a camel, which I don't know which one would have been worse, right? (laughs) 21 days with your butt hitting a camel, uh, I don't know, Well, could be hurting. But they're walking. They're not wearing the most comfortable Nikes. No, these men left their comfort zones to seek out the one they sought. And their lives were on the line. They understood that denying Herod, because Herod was well known for being a monster. And they knew that they were putting their lives on the line. So some of you found the kingdom this way, didn't you? Something you were exposed to as a child. And and over time, it became true to you. And then you found it. And it was like, aha, I get it. 
Others of you came to faith out of the, a wrong version of Christianity through investigating the truth, and you went, oh, this is the truth. This is what I've been waiting for. Or more correctly, if we want to be biblically accurate, the truth found you. See, the kingdom is worth all that we possess. It's worth everything that we own. No one makes financial payments to acquire it, but if it were for sale, no price would be too high. What an idea. Now, this makes no fiscal sense. I know some of you in here are pretty smart financially. This makes no fiscal sense, does it? Aren't we to diversify? Aren't we to kind of spread our investments out and not put it in one? This pearl guy says, nope, I'm doing the one. This is of so much more value. I don't need anything else. Give up what is value to get what is of the greatest value. And this is what life is all about, isn't it? It's about seeking out value, finding the things that we think are valuable and holding on to them. But understanding what God has done in Christ and following Christ is more valuable than all the possessions we possess or could ever possess. We need to understand that this is not saying you can buy your way into heaven. That's not what it's saying at all. It's saying that if you could, you would need all the money that the world has because that's how valuable it is. Now, for someone on the outside looking in, this looks crazy. This looks insane, extravagant, impractical. But for those who get it, no price is too great. I'm reminded of the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. When he said, I've followed the law, I've done everything that I need to do. And Jesus says, you need to do one more thing. What was it? Sell all that you have. And he went, oh, I can't do that. I can't do that. i got to diversify. i got to hedge my bets. Because if, if you don't come through God, i gotta have a, I got to have a 401k. i got to have a retirement. I've got to have land. i got to have a plan. Both parables say the kingdom is within reach, but it's only for those who abandon all for it. Neither man is portrayed as coming away with a net loss. It was portrayed as a wise decision. I keep coming back to this phrase from C.T. Studd, one of my favorite missionaries. He said, he is no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We can't hold on to these lives. The lives are going away. We are in the, on the verge of dying, every single one of us. Life is coming to an end. We can't hold on to this life, but we can give up this life and hold on to something that is eternal, called eternal life with Christ. I mean, that's what Paul said, right? Look at Philippians 3.8 again. Indeed, I count everything as loss. That's all that he is, is loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So how do we get into this kingdom? We've talked about the two ways. Some people stumble in and they find it by chance. Other people, they examine and they dig and they look and then they, they kind of find it, it kind of finds them as they are analyzing it. Here's an example of someone who wasn't looking for it, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was not going to Damascus to investigate Christianity. He was going to Damascus to kill Christians. Charles Spurgeon also, not looking for it. As a young man, 15 years old, he said, I'm going to be a good religious person. I should probably go to church because if I do the right stuff, I'll be right with God. And so he began walking to go to a church he'd never been to, and a blizzard hit. And so there was nowhere to go except for this Methodist church that he was walking by. So he went in. He said, when I could go no far further, I turned down a court and came to a Methodist church. The preacher who was conducting the service never got there because of the weather. 
And quickly, one of the elders got up to conduct the service of 15 people. I love this next part. Spurgeon says, the man was really stupid. His text was, look unto me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And he didn't have a sermon, so he stood up and he said the same thing over and over and over again. Suddenly he noticed Spurgeon. There's only 15 people there. You noticed the 16th person. Young man, you look very miserable. Miserable in life and miserable in death. You will be if you don't obey this text. And then this is what Spurgeon writes. He literally shouted at me, young man, look to Jesus. Look, 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 look. And Spurgeon said, I looked. And then the cloud was gone and darkness rolled away. And that moment, I beheld for the first time the sun. So he wasn't searching, right? He wasn't, he wasn't going, I need to go find this Jesus. He stumbled into a Methodist church that he'd never been to. And Jesus met him there. And if you think about somebody who's affected Christians throughout the world, Charles Spurgeon is one of those guys. And I love this quote. I don't know who that stupid guy was that just kept repeating the text, but I know it was of God. Spurgeon stumbled into God. Now the Pearl guy, right, he didn't stumble. He walked, he was looking, he was investigating. This reminds me of countless stories. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, who's digging into scripture, and Philip shows up and goes, do you understand what's going on? No one will explain it, help me. Or Cornelius. He goes, I don't understand what's going on. i got to go find the truth. And he goes and finds Peter. Or Lydia in Acts 16. Or the Philippian, Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Or the Bereans in Acts 17. They would not settle for not treasuring Christ. If they're there and they're going, I get this, but I don't quite get it. They kept going. So these two par- parables have the same meaning. Salvation is there. And it's hidden. But you can find it. So how, how, do, how does this become personal? How does this become, for us, what it's supposed to be? Well, first, it tells us Romans 3. It's a free gift. Can't do anything to earn it. You will not be able to purchase it. Matter of fact, this was the passage we read this morning, Isaiah 55.1. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So you see, there's, there's a problem there, right? You have no money, but come and buy. Saying, come, come and buy. Well, how does that work? Well, we're not buying with our money. We're buying with his money. The, the salvation comes from what Christ did. Christ is the one who did the exchange on our behalf. We cannot do it on our own. So there's a third group kind of hidden in these two passages. And this is the group of people who like the pearl merchant, have kind of started investigating what's going on with this Christianity thing. They may have discovered a few decent-sized pearls, but no treasure yet. This is a person who recognizes that God's word is true, maybe even makes a profession of faith, maybe even is baptized and attends church, but has never once treasured Christ. I know this group of people because I was one of them. As a matter of fact, I had knowledge, I had experience, I had been baptized, I had said all the right words, but I had not learned to treasure my Christ. Praise be to God that as I searched for him, he eventually found me. And this was after seminary. See, the thing is, is that it's not enough to have a few nuggets of truth. 
It's not enough to go through processes that say you belong. That, that what's, what's enough is treasuring Christ as valuable. Keep thinking on that because we'll come back to this in a minute. Now we look at what happens to those who do not respond rightly. Verse 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the only parable where Jesus explains it immediately. And he doesn't even waste breath. He goes right into it. This parable is telling us that kind of the end result when in Matthew 18 Jesus says, truly unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. This kingdom of heaven, this power is what gathers the fish, but it's also what changes the fish from good to bad, or from bad to good. The fish don't jump into the net, they try to avoid it. And actually, this is exactly like the parable of the wheat and the weeds, the wheat and the tares. Verse 50 is identical to verse 42. They're the same exact Greek words, and we see this here. Jesus is saying, here's what happens if you don't treasure the kingdom. If you don't treasure Christ, this is what's going to happen. So let's talk about this net. It's called a drag net. Not the show, even though it was a pretty good one. Drag net. So what they would do is they would attach the net to the shore and they would pull it out. Some of these nets could go almost a half a mile out into the water. So we're talking two to 3,000 feet long. They would pull it out and the top of the net would have floaters on it and the bottom would have weights and they would pull it out at an angle boat would swing itself around in a big swath until they could come back to the other side. And then what they would do is they'd have men on either side and they'd start pulling it in. And it would make this wall of a net and it would slowly get closer and closer and closer to the shore. And then eventually they'd pull it up on the shore and it would be full of flopping fish. What's interesting here is that as this is coming in, the fish are bumping into this net, aren't they? And they bump into it, and, and a fish, I'm imagining what they're thinking is, oh no, I can't go this way, i got to swim. And they swim into freedom, right? They swim into the open water behind them, but it turns out that water is actually not free because the net has surrounded them, and the net is pulling them into their silent death. See, this is what the city of Jerusalem was like when the, the, the wise men, the magi, showed up. See, they're fish, they're swimming around, and all of a sudden, they bumped into the net. They bumped into something that made them go, wait a second, there is a God, and he has a, has a rule over my life. I need to do something about this. Matthew 2, Herod the king heard this, the magi asking about the, the king, and he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem with him. He assembled the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So when Herod gets upset, all of Jerusalem gets upset. Because Herod was a terrible individual. Think of the pressure that these leaders would have had, right? They're like the, the dream interpreters of Nebuchadnezzar or, or Pharaoh who say, you better tell me where this is or I'm going to kill you. I mean, this, this guy, Herod, was so nuts that he realized his kids were probably going to overthrow him, so he had him murdered. They bump into the net. They, they, they bumped into this judgment that the king is here and they have to either submit to the king or rebel. And they go, ah, we're, we're, we're bumping into the net. Go, go, Jesus is over there. And then what do they do? 
They just swim away and go back to their lives. Not a single person goes the few miles from Jerusalem over to Bethlehem. They go right about their business. Not even King Herod could do that. This is where people are. We encounter them daily. There are people that are bad fish that are bumping into nets all the time. Maybe they have a nearly disastrous car accident. Maybe they have a cancer scare. Maybe their, their job is, they're going to lose their job. Maybe they could potentially lose their job. But they're bumping into something that rocks their world. They're bumping into the net. And they bump into that, and instead of going to the king who's closing the net on them, who's, who's finishing their time in this life, instead of going to him, they go, well, I can't go that way, i got to go swim over here. And they want to enjoy their freedom for the last few moments before the net is fully, clo- fully closed. See, Jesus finishes off this section because he wants to remind us that the net is being closed. One of two ways, either our life is coming to an end or the king is returning. It's a finished item because God promised it and he keeps all of his promises. So this is happening around us right now. Judgment is on display around us right now. The net is closing. Those who treasure him more than the things of the world are the good fish. Those who have no time for him and want to enjoy their freedom, they're the bad fish. Jesus wants us to see clearly what is happening here. See, we don't prove we're good fish by by valuing the kingdom. We are good fish because we value the kingdom. And see, don't we all bump into nets in one way or the other? We're all bumping into the fact that this life is short. This life is finite. Whether it's that Jesus is coming back and we're seeing signs in the world and we're going, it's coming soon, and we bump into that, or maybe we bump into the fact that we are mortal. What do we do when that happens? Do we shake our fist at God and go, how dare you? You can't judge me. How dare you? You should have let me live forever. Or do we go, wow, that's awesome, but I have a bunch of things on my bucket list that I want to do first. Or do we look at it and go, the net's closing. I get to see my king soon. Which one are you? See, our response to the net, the coming judgment, tells us all we need to know. All of the responses that we've had. I I know Jesus, but I haven't treasured him. I've treasured him because I've stumbled upon him. I've treasured him because I've looked for him, or I don't want anything to do with him. All of these responses are what we see around us. So the question we're left with is, how do I go from being a bad fish to a good fish? Well, it's simple. Ask the Father to show you. See, one of the things that we forget about with God is that God is a proud Father. Matthew 3.17 says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He declared this from heaven. This is God being a proud Papa, saying, Look at my boy. Isn't he great? Isn't he spectacular? This is what fathers need to do. And this is what our Heavenly Father did. So how do we go from being a bad fish to a good fish? We don't attend church. We don't tithe regularly. We don't obey all the rules. Now, those are things we should all do in response to how great the king is. But that doesn't get us right with God. What gets us right with God is seeing Jesus rightly. Because when we see Jesus rightly, we will treasure him. Because he is the beloved son in whom God is well pleased. So let him show you that today. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your son and his amazing life, a perfect life lived in our place, perfect life taking the punishment that we so deserve. And Lord, we, we now take a moment to recognize that and remember that. What an incredible gift that makes Christmas special, that makes Christmas what it is, is the gift of your son. So Lord, now as we spend some time reflecting on that, I pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in it. In your name, amen.